Welcome to the Kings and Queens podcast with your host, Johnny Langton. On the 18th of January, 1649, Judge John Bradshaw arrived at court. He was described by a contemporary as a man of execrable memory, of whom nothing good is remembered. He was adorned with a broad-brimmed bulletproof beaver hat, lined with steel and armour underneath his robes, and carried a sword. Many in the courtroom professed that they didn't know who he was. The defendant didn't know who he was. But he was to preside over the most momentous, unique trial in English legal history. Yet a role he had tried to relinquish. A role more senior judges had categorically refused. For this was the trial of the King of England. A trial the King of England would lose. This is Charles I. Charles was born on the 19th of November 1600 at Dunfermline Palace. He was born the second son of James VI of Scotland and Anne of Denmark. He was baptised at Holyrood Palace, Edinburgh, in a Protestant ceremony. He was a weak and sickly infant, perhaps caused by rickets. He seemed unlikely to survive to adulthood. When his father became King of England, Charles was not considered strong enough to make the journey. He was two and a half, couldn't walk and couldn't speak. James suggested putting him in leg irons and to cut the string under his tongue to aid his speaking. He would eventually overcome his muteness, but was afflicted with a stammer for the rest of his life. By 1604, when he was able to walk the length of the Great Hall of Dunfermline Palace, he was judged to be strong enough to travel to England. He was put in boots of Spanish leather and brass to strengthen his weak ankles. He overcame his physical impediments and would eventually become an adept horseman, marksman and fencer. Though even in adulthood, he stood no higher than five feet four and was overshadowed by his physically superior, popular elder brother, the heir apparent, Prince Henry, whom he would attempt to emulate. Charles received a classic royal education, studying languages, maths, the classics and religion. In 1612, his elder brother Henry died at the age of 18. This meant the young, feeble, taciturn Charles became the heir apparent. When Charles reached adulthood, James was keen to match him with the Infanta Maria Anna, the daughter of Philip III of Spain, as a way of achieving peace in a belligerent Europe. There was a duel developing over the vacant throne of Bohemia. On one side, Frederick V, Elector Palatine of the Rhine, an elector for the Holy Roman Emperor. He was the Protestant husband of Charles's elder sister Elizabeth, a natural ally for the English. On the other side was Archduke Ferdinand of Austria, a Catholic. In 1617, Ferdinand was elected King of Bohemia. Then, in 1619, the Bohemian Assembly chose Frederick in defiance of the Holy Roman Emperor. This would develop into the Thirty Years' War. In James's final years, he would try with all his might to keep a startling record of keeping England out of war 
for his entire reign. It would not be easy. The classic religious power struggle left Europe engulfed in war. The public and parliament yearned for it. It is not hard to see exactly why matching Charles, the heir, to a princess from the most powerful Catholic state in Europe may not have been the most popular move. In 1621, a hostile parliament rejected the match, yet Charles and his favourite, George Villiers, the Duke of Buckingham, persisted. Francis Bacon, the Lord Chancellor, the chief opponent of the match, was impeached. The first of its kind since 1459, setting a precedent for future purges in government. James argued that Parliament was responsible solely for domestic affairs and anything else threatened royal prerogative. A standoff in 1622 led to James dissolving an enraged Parliament a parliament who adamantly insisted on their right to freedom of speech. This set another precedent, as a young Charles watched on. Charles and Buckingham took matters into their own hands, travelling incognito to Spain in 1623, using fake beards and fake names. When they arrived at the royal house in Spain, Charles met his prospective wife, the Infanta was deeply disappointed. She called him an infidel, a weedy man. The English contingent did very little to adorn themselves with the Spanish royals. Charles reportedly boasted of England's inns and mocked Spain's beggared lands. When a Spanish Jesuit attempted to reconcile an English knight to Rome, he was struck in the face for his trouble. Nevertheless, terms for marriage were drawn up, Charles must convert to Catholicism, the penal laws against Catholics in England must be repealed, and the Infanta would not budge an inch until the English fully complied. Even the stubborn Buckingham had to resign to the fact that the terms would never pass through the English Parliament. They returned to England defeated. They were met with a joyous crowd. Not because they were missed, but because Charles returned without a Catholic bride. At this point, Charles and Buckingham were the de facto rulers in place of a fading James. They were now persuaded to go to war with Spain, yet a fractious, dysfunctional parliament could not provide more than a poorly provisioned army to fight the Protestant cause in Europe that was doomed to fail from the start. On the 27th of March, 1625, James died and was succeeded officially, with no opposition, by Charles. He was crowned the following February, King of England. He wasn't crowned King of Scotland for a further seven years, demonstrating the little interest he held for his country of birth. Buckingham and King Charles now looked to Catholic France for a union. It was successful. On the 1st of May, 1625, he married the sister of Louis XIII of France, Henrietta Maria, by proxy. They then met in June. Charles had delayed the opening of Parliament until consummation in order to prevent any opposition to his marriage. The new Queen was a Catholic. Parliament was, quite understandably, deeply concerned about any relaxation of anti-Catholic law and the undermining of the Church of England. Charles promised Parliament that the marriage would not result in the easing of restrictions, 
Yet in secret, he had promised exactly the opposite. He also promised to loan seven English ships to the French in the battle against the Protestant Huguenots, allies of Protestant England. Henrietta Maria did very little to soothe tensions when she arrived on English shores. With a retinue of over 200 French priests and papists, to the horror of the English public. When she was asked whether she would participate in Charles's coronation, she smashed a window in fury. The Protestant coronation was noticeably lacking a queen. From the sickly child doting on his dashing brother, Charles had come a long way. He was a cultured man who compensated for his small stature and stammer with a zealous love of art amassing one of the greatest collections in Europe. By Rubens, he was labelled the greatest amateur painter among the princes of the world. He was glacial, he was prudish, he was withdrawn, and he was slippery. At least from the moment Charles became the heir, he had his father in his ear. Their honest and obedient subject should understand that the king is above the law. Charles was all too willing to adhere to his father's philosophy. It meant that by the time Charles succeeded, his grit, his principles, and his nous had spilled over into obstinance, into vanity, into contempt. He would face a sometimes equally as obstinate, vain, and contemptuous parliament, which had grown into a force during Tudor England, and was still reeling from the treatment of James. Their first objective was to rid the court of the Duke of Buckingham. Due to the deals made with the French and Parliament's insistence in waging war against them, Charles had tied himself in knots. The French and the English both accused each other of breaking terms of a treaty. When Charles refused to provide all the ships promised, as he did not want to be associated with further attacks on the Huguenots. Charles and Buckingham were keen for significant supply to be granted by Parliament for campaigns in Europe. Parliament was hesitant to fund a campaign led by Buckingham. The Duke then led England into two disastrous campaigns, the second of which was in Cadiz in November 1625. It became apparent quickly that the army was too poorly supplied to execute the plan of stealing treasure and weakening the Spanish supply line. Buckingham was inextricably associated with the dismal failure that was marked by ill-discipline. A lack of food and water meant soldiers raided the wine vats found in the local houses. The drunken soldiers, in no shape to fight, were sent stumbling into retreat. The campaign resulted in 7,000 English dead or captured. The following year, Parliament began impeachment proceedings against Buckingham. They refused to grant Charles subsidies for war until Buckingham was removed from intermeddling with the great affairs of state. Charles quickly dissolved Parliament. In 1627, Buckingham launched a new campaign to relieve La Rochelle. It was a calamity of errors and misjudgments. Upon arrival, the siege engineer drowned. This meant that the army were clueless as to how to proceed. They were again severely ill-equipped. The cannons were too small to operate, and the ladders were too small to ascend the walls of a city. In a disease-riven camp, 
at least 5,000 out of the 7,000 men sent to France didn't return. As parliamentarian John Elliott described, our honour is ruined, our ships are sunk, our men perish not by the sword, not by our enemy, but by those we trust. England had become a laughingstock. The failed siege of La Rochelle left England's military reputation in tatters. Buckingham was again in the firing line. In 1628, impeachment proceedings began once more. John Elliot, who had already made several open and daring attacks upon Buckingham, spoke once more in Parliament. Regarding the inward character of the Duke's mind, which is full of collusion and deceit, I can express it no better than by the beast so called the ancient Stellionatus, a beast so blurred, so spotted, that they knew not what to make of it, his design being against Rochelle and religion. He intercepts, consumes and exhausts the resources of the crown. It wasn't just Parliament, but also the public who entertained a universal hatred of Buckingham. Charles again dissolved Parliament before Buckingham could be impeached. Yet, before he dissolved Parliament, Charles was faced with several accusations regarding his own conduct. He reluctantly signed the Petition of Right. Since his reign began, Charles had been raising money through tonnage and poundage. Tonnage was the payments on each tonne of wine imported, and poundage the money levied on the pound sterling value of all imported and exported goods. While collection of tax was the jurisdiction of Parliament, they had granted the revenues to the King through a year. Charles was astounded that he was not granted the revenues for life. Such an act was not unprecedented. After the year was up, while Parliament were reluctant to provide sufficient funds for a war that they approved of, Charles continued to collect tonnage and poundage. Charles also began collecting war money through forced loans, similar tactics to the ones adopted by Henry VII. He targeted particularly wealthy individuals to contribute to the war effort. When they refused, they were imprisoned without trial. At least 70 individuals were imprisoned for failure to pay. He also enacted martial law, forcing private citizens to feed and house soldiers. The Petition of Right put forward in 1628 stated that the King could not levy tax without their consent or imprison without due process. He also could not impose prerogative on Parliament nor support a standing army. The acceptance of Charles meant the petition was the most explicit charter of political liberty since Magna Carta. It largely influenced future civil rights declarations, including the US Declaration of Independence. Charles was characteristically stubborn, even in defeat, claiming that kings are not bound to give account of their actions, but to God alone. Six months later, he had prorogued Parliament and reasserted his right to collect duties without consent. His reputation for duplicity and subterfuge was growing. With Parliament failing to impeach 
an army officer decided to take more violent, direct means to rid the court of its most maligned member. On the 23rd of August, 1628, the Duke of Buckingham was organising a campaign at the Greyfriars pub in Portsmouth. There, Officer John Felton stabbed him to death. The public rejoiced in the killing. The joy was so overwhelming that his funeral had to be held at night. Charles was distraught and bitterly wounded by the reaction to his favourite's death. Parliament, while they could only condemn a murder, could be privately optimistic of change now Charles was out on his own. Yet he would continue to enforce his unpopular policies. The Reformation was constantly at the forefront of his reign. It saw specifically the rise of Arminianism. They emphasised clerical authority and the individual ability to reject or accept salvation. They also favoured doctrines of the historical church prior to the Reformation and opposed Calvinism. They had also supported Charles in a deeply unpopular Spanish match. Their opponents, Puritans, viewed this as heretical and a vehicle for the reintroduction of Catholicism. Charles was seen as sympathetic to the cause and an open sponsor. After Parliament had attacked writer Richard Montague, who had been accused of supporting the Catholic practice of preying on two sins and angels in the time of need, Charles made him a royal chaplain, and then the Bishop of Chichester. Another anti-Calvinist, Roger Mannering, was impeached for praising Charles's forced loans. He was pardoned, and then also made a royal chaplain. William Lord, Bishop of London, an ardent Episcopalian, who believed in a strict hierarchy of bishops within the church and rituals, was appointed by Charles Archbishop of Canterbury. A dangerous polarisation was now visible within the church. Charles reopened Parliament in January 1629 and was met with immediate opposition. John Roll was a Turkey merchant and MP. His goods had been confiscated due to his failure to pay tonnage and poundage to the royal purse. This was the case that Parliament would bring to the King. MPs claimed that this was a blatant breach of a petition of right which forbade Charles collecting duties without Parliament's consent. Charles ordered an adjournment, yet members of the House, seething and overcome with frustration, knew they had to act before their session was again dissolved. They held down the Speaker of the House, John Finch, in his red chair before he could adjourn the session. They then read out resolutions against Catholics against Arminians and their push for a return to church ceremony and restoration of neglected Catholic rituals, and against Charles's illegal collection of tonnage and poundage. Black Rod banged on the door to halt discussions, immediately on the orders of the King. The rebellious MPs were defiant. John Eliot condemned attempts to prevent Parliament its right to speak and innovations in religion. He then proclaimed that none in this house had gone about to break Parliament. But in the end, 
Parliaments had broken them. The resolutions were lauded. Yet any who disagreed shall be reputed a capital enemy to his kingdom and commonwealth. He shall likewise be reputed a betrayer of the liberties of England. Two days later, Charles had the dissidents arrested. Denzel Holes, John Elliot, and seven others. Charles then dissolved Parliament again. Elliot would die imprisoned three years later. On the 10th of March, 1629, Charles dissolved Parliament for the final time. He would rule without them for 11 years. Charles used the medieval court of the Star Chamber as a parliamentary substitute. Due to the death of Buckingham, Charles and his distant wife grew closer, and the Queen would become an influential figure at the new court. It was a largely negative influence. She was deeply unpopular, with no real idea of how English politics worked. In May 1630, the couple had their first child, also named Charles, one of four children who would survive into adulthood. While Charles and his father, James, shared a very strong belief in the divine right of kings, this was about all they had in common. Charles's court was the opposite of James's. He restored order and enforced a strict hierarchy. According to a contemporary, it was chaste, temperate and serious. Court jesters were dismissed. It was less offensive than the bawdry and profane abuse of wit of which was the exercise of the other court, i.e. the court of James. One could only speak to Charles with an appointment, that is to assume one would want it. He didn't drink and didn't like to debate issues. He frequently broke his word and felt absolutely no reason to keep it. There was no accountability in his mind. With Charles determined to rule alone, he knew there would never be the supply required to remain at war. Therefore, he made peace with both France and Spain, ending England's rather ignominious involvement in the Thirty Years' War. Even with control over tonnage and poundage, and the imposition of forced loans, Charles had to become more creative in extracting the wealth from his people. After all, England was the least taxed country in Europe, with no regular direct tax imposed. One way he did this was through ship money. This was a war tax imposed upon coastal regions against invasion and raiding pirates. Charles made it national. The use of a tax was so vague that he got away with it, and it provided between 150 and 200,000 pounds annually in the 1630s. He granted monopolies, despite it being forbidden, this raised about a hundred grand annually. He raised funds from the Scottish nobility. The act of revocation meant that all gifts of royal or church land since 1540 were revoked, with continued ownership being subject to an annual rent. Royal forests were restored to their ancient limits. This meant that any landowner encroaching upon those limits, of which there were many, were fined. Charles also sold many forest lands for agriculture and other industries, resulting in riots. Perhaps Charles's most ludicrous extraction was through an ancient law not imposed since the days of Edward III, 300 years prior. He resurrected the distraint of knighthood. Any man earning £40 or more from land each year must be made a knight. If the man had not, 
or does not present himself to the king to be knighted would be fined. Such outrageous methods of collecting revenue resulted in a growing yet largely muted opposition. In 1634, a Puritan lawyer called William Prynne wrote a scathing attack on royal masks, plays performed for the royal couple, calling them immoral and condemned by scripture and the fathers of the church. The court of the Star Chamber sentenced him to life imprisonment and the amputation of his ears. MP John Hamden refused to pay ship money, arguing the case in court, claiming that the king himself was the lawbreaker. Prynne and Hamden became heroes for their cause in early versions of newspapers circulating London and the provinces. A cartoon showed Archbishop Lord dining on a dish of Prynne's ears. John Milton quipped, Parliament hath no less freedom if it sat in his noose. One of Charles's emerging allies was Thomas Wentworth, Earl of Stafford. He was made Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. He treated the Irish with brutal oppression, extracting large subsidies from the capital. He gained the nickname Black Tom. Archbishop William Lord also had free reign and set about abolishing or curtailing Puritan practices using the Court of High Commission. According to his detractors, he was allowing Catholicism to enter England through a side door. Lord was not a cruel man. He put no one to death. Deprivation, exile and imprisonment were his preferred weapons to impose the will of his bishops on the population, as the Puritan clergy were gradually superseded by ardent ritualists. According to G.M. Trevelyan, if proof was needed that Lord's rule was a persecution, it would be found in the fact that many thousands of religious refugees of all classes, abandoned good prospects and loved homes in England to camp out between the shore of a lonely ocean and forests swarming with savage tribes in North America. Eight years into Charles's personal rule, the books were balanced, the council efficient, national policies effective, and he was raising £1 million per year without Parliament. This was 50% higher than in 1625. He perhaps had no plans to ever recall Parliament. Or perhaps he was waiting for the contemptuous generation of MPs to die off before a new, loyal, reliable breed took office and harmony could be restored. At this stage, the dejected MPs were by no means united. They were unorganised. Even the king's most ardent detractors had little in common except their belief in the need for a strong parliament. If Charles could maintain the flow of income, he could survive. Yet by 1639, his regime began to unravel. With growing opposition to ship money, only 20% was being collected by 1639. The city of London refused to make loans to the king, as did foreign powers. An increasingly desperate king seized £130,000 worth of silver bullion from the tower, promising an 8% interest to the owners. It would only be a temporary fix. By the beginning of 1640, Charles was edging towards bankruptcy. However, it was north of the border where Charles would be met with stiff opposition. 
enough to completely unravel his personal rule. William Lord imposed the Book of Common Prayer on Scotland without consulting its Parliament, or the Kirk, the Scottish Church. Charles and Lord were imposing Anglicanism on Scotland. The Scots favoured a Presbyterian church governed by ministers and elders. On the day the new book was read out for the first time at St Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh, a footstool was held at the door and pandemonium broke out. Riots spread to the streets and then across the country. Nobles took charge, ignoring Charles's orders to disband, as Parliament declared its ability to govern itself. A national covenant was formed in opposition to Charles's religious reform, precipitating in the Bishops' Wars in 1639. For the first time in 300 years, an English king raised an army without summoning Parliament. Charles called upon peers to march north. Many ignored the call. Even those who did would have to deal with mutinies within their own ranks. The makeshift army was underfunded, poorly trained, many with sympathies for their opponents. Action was minimal. Charles resigned to the fact that he'd severely lacked the funds for war and negotiated a fragile truce with the Scots. And after 11 years of personal rule, recalled Parliament to be assembled in April 1640. Charles recalled Parliament for one reason, money. Parliament would present a long list of grievances pertaining to the last 11 years of Charles's personal rule. John Pym emerged as the central figure of opposition. He stated their refusal to grant the King war money until royal abuses were addressed. Charles responded predictably. Affronted once more by the perceived attack on royal privilege, he dissolved Parliament after just three weeks. Strafford then persuaded Charles to adopt similar brutal tactics to whom he was subjecting the Irish on the Scots in order to pacify them, and so they marched to war. On the 17th of August 1640, the Covenanter army crossed the River Tweed onto English soil and made for Newcastle upon Tyne. Before they could take the town, they faced Charles's army at the Battle of Newburn. The organised, experienced Scots trounced the English with a numerical advantage of four to one. They then occupied Newcastle and Durham. Morale in the royal camp collapsed and Charles was forced into humiliating peace terms. The Treaty of Ripon, signed in October, allowed Scotland to retain the land they gained and were paid £850 per day for their convenience. Charles was out of options and called for Parliament once more to convene in November. He was now defenceless and Parliament would show no mercy. The retrospectively named Long Parliament set to work to ensure its own survival. Led by John Pym, they passed a bill preventing their own dissolution without their consent, and the Triennial Act requiring Parliament to be called at least once every three years, and permitted the Lord Keeper and 12 peers to call Parliament if the monarch failed to do so. Ship money, 
fines for the distraint of knighthoods, and excise without consent, was declared unlawful, and the bodies used to enforce Charles's will, the court of a star chamber, and the high commission, were both abolished. Parliament now targeted Charles's enablers, the Earl of Strafford and the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Lord. The power and prestige of the monarchy was still so profound that Charles was still protected as a man who was guided by evil counsellors. John Finch, Charles's former speaker in the House, was impeached. Lord was then impeached just a month after Parliament was called and sent to the Tower. In March 1641, Strafford was charged with 28 counts of arbitrary and tyrannical government. Strafford defended himself ably in court, and the charges for treason would be hard to prove, as it was not clear that his crimes constituted a crime against the king. Pym moved instead to a bill of attainder. This allowed Parliament to declare a person guilty without the need of a trial and to order their execution. The sentence, however, could not be carried out without royal assent, and Charles was unwilling to sign the death warrant. With this impasse, Pym began to stir up mobs in London, baying for the blood of Black Tom. After threats to his own family, Charles had little choice but to sign Strafford's death warrant. On the 12th of May 1641, Strafford was beheaded before a frenzied crowd in London. Lord would suffer the same fate through the same means four years later. Just a few months later, Ireland rebelled. Ireland was largely split into three social groups. The Gaelic Irish Catholics, the Old English, who were Norman descendants and mostly Catholics as well, and the New English Protestant settlers. The Catholic Irish instigated the rebellion, wanting an end to anti-Catholic discrimination, greater Irish self-governance, and to reverse the plantations of the Protestant settlers. They were deeply worried, following the execution of Strafford, of a Protestant parliamentary takeover. The rebels rose in a preemptive strike. Propaganda spread of the slaughter of thousands upon thousands of Protestant settlers by the Gaelic Irish in the most depraved, wicked ways imaginable. Estimates suggest up to 3,000 were in fact killed, which amounted to a fifth of the settler population. London was frantic. Parliament decided that they did not trust Charles, so would control the army and its generals without the king. Further damage had been done to Charles's reputation, with many Irish rebels fighting in Charles's name. Despite the huge gains for Parliament, and despite the unrest in Ireland, John Pym pushed forward to further reinforce parliamentary power with a grand remonstrance in November 1641. It would be one of the chief events which would precipitate the Civil War. It was a further list of grievances, it summarised all of Parliament's opposition to Charles's foreign, financial, legal and religious policies, setting forth 204 separate points. It sought to regulate tax, to control the appointment of ministers and judges, 
it sought to control the army and navy, to expel all bishops from Parliament. Charles would rule in name only. It was the most radical assertion of any Parliament in Europe. Pym was careful not to attach any blame to the king himself, which would land him quickly in hot water, but rather assert that he was an unknowing pawn in a greater Roman Catholic conspiracy. The further of the raucous MPs alarmed moderates who had rallied behind the king. Many who had supported opposing measures against the king began to believe that the Grand Remonstrance was impinging upon royal authority. It passed through the Commons with a majority of just 11, much tighter than previous votes, and received little support in the Lords. For many members, Pym and his Crusaders had gone too far, and Charles was beginning to garner sympathy. However, Charles's reaction was the final spark that led to war. Queen Henrietta Maria pleaded with Charles, pull these rogues out by their ears or never see my face again. Charles instructed the Attorney General to commence treason proceedings against five members of the Commons. John Pym, Arthur Hesselrig, Denzel Holes, John Hamden, William Strode, and one member of the Lords. The members monitored Charles's location, offering themselves as bait. On the 4th of January 1642, Charles took an almighty risk and went to Westminster to arrest them personally, with an armed guard of 400 men. Into the chamber, he was accompanied only by his nephew, as his guard waited outside. As he walked in, the crowded benches of the House of Commons sat silently. To the new speaker, William Lenthal, he said, Yield me your seat. Lenthal knelt on the ground before the king. When Charles asked where the five men were, he replied, May it please your majesty, I have neither ears to see nor tongue to speak in this place. But as this house is pleased to direct me, whose servant I am here, and I humbly beg your majesty's pardon that I cannot give any other answer than this to what your majesty is pleased to demand me. The speaker had always been an agent of the crown. This speaker had now declared his allegiance to Parliament. All trust was gone. Charles replied, "'Tis no matter. I think my eyes are as good as another's. He cast his eyes across the muted benches. The fugitives had escaped. Charles, defeated, uttered, All my birds have flown. With this he turned on his heel and left. As he left, cries of privilege echoed forcefully and vehemently around the chamber. No ruling monarch had ever entered the House of Commons nor has it happened since. It was a haven for democracy. Charles had committed a grave breach of parliamentary privilege. Negotiations and compromise were now off the table. 
Charles himself was no longer safe where he was. While he retreated with haste to Hampton Court and then to Windsor, parliamentary forces seized London. An armed guard ensured the targeted MPs could safely take their rightful seats. The remaining royalist MPs, which accounted for two-fifths of Parliament, also fled the capital. With only MPs loyal to Parliament remaining in Westminster, the Grand Remonstrance passed. Henrietta Maria and their children were safely sent abroad, where the Queen set about pawning the crown jewels. Charles went north. When he arrived at Hull to raid the largest arsenal outside of London, he was refused entry. The gates were locked. They had declared for Parliament. He then set up base at Nottingham, calling upon all his subjects to defend his rights on the field of battle. Both sides had their own advantages. The Royalists were backed by very wealthy men. Unlike the Parliamentarians, they had a unified command under a clear and natural ruler, with a simple military objective, to take back London. Initially their strength lay in the North and the East Midlands, from Lancashire to Oxford. Their army was nicknamed the Cavaliers, named after the Caballeros notorious Spanish troopers, known for their brutality against Dutch Protestants, a nickname Charles himself liked and adopted. They were led by Charles's nephew, Prince Rupert, an experienced cavalry commander. The Parliamentarians' biggest advantage was controlling London. They could exploit its wealth, its trade, which accounted for 70% of the country, and its manpower. They also had control of the navy. Their army was nicknamed the Roundheads, due to the crop-haired London rioters that had rallied against the bishops and the lords. Military factors would play little part in battle, with both sides using similar equipment, tactics, and with experienced officers in command. The first battle of the war at Edge Hill in October 1642 was a nervy affair, with many inexperienced soldiers fleeing the battle. Rupert drove back the Parliamentarians led by the Earl of Essex. It was followed by an ill-disciplined chase. Charles did not have the support in numbers to press home the advantage and march on London, and instead retreated to Oxford before winter closed in. It was a missed opportunity to end the war before it really started. At Christchurch, Charles set up his base for the remainder of the war. By spring the following year, armies were being fully mobilised. Organised regionally, each army had a primary duty to protect its region from invasion, and a marching army with national responsibility. In the first year of the war, 
the Royalists had gained more ground, taking Yorkshire and Bristol, among other places. As war waged on, however, both sides would lose support in areas they controlled due to imposing heavy taxes called Scott. If a citizen managed to avoid paying it, they would get off scot-free. When Charles was strapped for funds, he began melting down silver in Oxford. In August 1643, parliamentary morale was low. The death of John Hamden convinced people that they were on the brink of collapse. John Pym negotiated a deal with the Covenant in Scotland, in exchange for their army, on condition that the Scottish system of church government was adopted in England. It was Pym's last act. He died in December. In the summer the following year, the Scots joined the Roundheads. Here they were joined by a little-known Cambridgeshire MP and his cavalry, Oliver Cromwell. On the 2nd of July, the Roundheads closed in on Rupert at Marston Moor. It was the biggest battle of the Civil War. The Roundheads, composed of a combined force of 22,000 men, met 17,000 cavaliers. At 7pm, the Roundheads launched a surprise attack, and following a confused fight lasting just two hours, Parliamentarian cavalry under Oliver Cromwell routed Prince Rupert's Royalist cavalry and decimated their infantry. It resulted in 5,000 Royalists dead, compared to just 300 loyal to Parliament. It was the first defeat of Rupert's cavalry and it cemented Cromwell's military legacy. The Royalists abandoned all control of the north of England. Yet all was not lost. Just six weeks later, at the Battle of Lostwithiel in Cornwall, Charles himself launched an attack forcing the surrender of around 6,000 parliamentarian infantry. It was one of the worst defeats for the parliamentarians and secured the southwest for the Royalists. After the Royalist resurgence following Marston Moor, Oliver Cromwell lost patience. He used his now considerable reputation to assert control. The self-denying ordinance, signed the following year, effectively removed aristocratic commanders, including the Earl of Essex, whose reputation was in tatters following the Battle of Lostwithiel. Cromwell had said, I hope I live to see never a nobleman in England. This also paved the way for the new model army, Commanded by Thomas Fairfax, this army would be a properly recruited professional army. Cromwell would command its cavalry. They replaced the regional militias. The deeply Puritan army was inspired by religion, not just money. Instead of drinking after battle, they would sing hymns and listen to sermons. This army, largely independent from Parliament, was far from moderate. Neither was Cromwell who, in his own words, had been sent by his maker to save his country from superstition. His supporters called him Angry Heaven's Flame. Like the army in which he commanded, he was honest, humourless and dedicated. By June 1645, it was ready. At the Battle of Naseby in June, while Rupert's cavalry swept aside the parliamentary horsemen, the Royalist infantry was being cut down. By the time Rupert returned to the main field of battle, it was too late. 
The king had lost his best officers, seasoned troops and artillery. Naseby was the final significant battle of the Civil War. The parliamentarians captured thousands of prisoners and thousands of pounds worth of booty. All that now remained was for the parliamentarian armies to wipe out the last pockets of royalist resistance, which it did within the year. Soon Oxford was besieged. Charles escaped in disguise and surrendered, not to the new model army, but to the Scots at Newark. What now? At Naseby, the parliamentarians had also gained possession of the king's baggage. Inside, they discovered letters. It proved that Charles had planned to hire foreign mercenaries and to repeal laws against Catholics. His appeal to the Gaelic Irish was particularly damaging after years of propaganda. This was the ultimate betrayal for Oliver Cromwell and the new model army. Yet at this stage, no one was really considering arresting the king. Parliament was much keener to negotiate. The nation had been exhausted by war. It is estimated that four out of five adult males fought, with one out of ten at arms at any time between 1642 and 1645. 150 towns had been turned to rubble. 11,000 houses had been burned, with 55,000 displaced, and nearly 200,000 dead. But what to do with such an implacable king? Debates were heard across the country. The levellers in Putney discussed radical utopian ideas of a parliament, elected by all men, not just landowners, with no lords and no monarchy. Most parliamentarians were much more moderate. They had two options. Exonerate the king for restoration of order and peace, or venture into uncharted waters. Most of parliament opted for option one. After paying off the Scots, Charles was to be handed over to the parliamentarians in January 1647. As he travelled down south, he was given a strangely warm reception. The nation looked forward to a peaceful settlement. The new model army was ordered to disband, denying its backlog of payments and pensions. The army refused and seized the king, carrying him to Hampton Court. More fruitless negotiations would take place, with the army putting pressure on Parliament not to cede to royal demands. Fearing an assassination attempt, Charles was again able to escape, landing at Carisbrook Castle in November 1647. There he continued to bargain. By this point, Charles was encouraged by a divided, anguished parliament, and his confidence grew. He then made a decision that would seal his faith. Despite everything the Scots knew about their duplicitous king, they agreed to a deal to support him in exchange for three years of Presbyterian rule in England. On the King's behalf, the Scots undertook an invasion of England, which sparked royalist uprisings in Kent, Essex and Cumberland in May 1648, igniting the Second Civil War. The new model army sprang into action, and everywhere they put the royalists to the sword. They were massacred. An example of the brutality exercised 
was the death of the King's chaplain. Cornered at Woodcroft Hall in Cambridgeshire, he flung himself into a moat. Ignoring his calls for mercy, the chaplain, hanging onto a drainage spout, had his fingers slashed off. When he was retrieved from the moat, his tongue was cut out and then executed. The Second Civil War was savage and symbolically unforgiving in what was about to come. Even Oliver Cromwell had been advocating a level of leniency before Charles's last act of betrayal with the Scots. Not now. Cromwell and the New Model Army were rallying to ensure the King would be removed. To ensure sympathetic parliamentarians would not disrupt the handling of justice, on the 6th of December, in what would be known as Pride's Purge, Cromwell and his men surrounded Westminster, arresting or turning away all suspected compromises. Others boycotted proceedings, 140 members in total. One of those excluded was Denzel Holt, one of the five men Charles had tried to arrest. He now represented the Peace Party, a group who favoured negotiating with the King. His party had been nullified by force. The new rump parliament then voted in a public show to put the King on trial for treason. Only a sixth of total MPs voted. It passed. The first of its kind. He would be tried as Charles Stuart. On the 18th of December, a beleaguered King was removed from Carisbrook Castle. His hair and his beard were long and unkempt. So anxious and paranoid he had been, he had not let any barber cut his hair. Through fear, his throat would be slit. But his appearance did not reflect his inner resolve. On the 20th of January 1649, the trial of the king began. He entered the room, looked around with scorn, refusing to remove his hat. Charles had been trusted with a limited power to govern by and according to the laws of the land, hath traitorously and maliciously levied war against the present Parliament. This was his charge. Charles responded in the same way he did for the entirety of the trial. I cannot be tried by any superior jurisdiction on earth. England has never been an elective kingdom, but a hereditary one. By what power am I called hither? I am your lawful king, with a trust committed to me by God, by old and lawful descent. He refused to plead an answer to the charges. Witnesses testified Charles had rallied troops at Edge Hill and Naseby, proving guilt of waging war on Parliament and the people. He was found guilty. After a three-day trial, he was found guilty as a tyrant, traitor, murderer and public enemy to the good people of this nation. His head would be severed from his body. Fifty-nine men signed his death warrant. On the 30th of January 1649, Charles was led to a platform outside the banqueting house in Whitehall. It was a bitterly cold winter morning. Charles wore two shirts, so he wouldn't be seen to shiver. 
on the platform, he gave a speech. Unfortunately, the crowd was too far away to hear it. Finding an executioner had been difficult. Heavily disguised, the executioner beheaded Charles with a single blow of the axe. A witness described the reaction. When the axe fell, the crowd gave such a groan as I've never heard before and desire never to hear again. During the night, a cloaked figure visited the corpse of the king. He stood over it, declaring it a cruel necessity. It was Cromwell. The office of a king was deemed unnecessary, burdensome and dangerous to the liberty, safety and public interest of the people and shall not henceforth reside in or be exercised by any one single person. The monarchy was then abolished by an act of parliament. He was refused burial at Westminster Abbey. Instead, he was interred at St George's Chapel at Windsor Castle. Whose blood stains the walls of our towns and defiles our land? Is it not all English? Nearly 200,000 people perished during the Civil War, accounting for an estimated 3 to 4% of the population. A higher proportion of those who perished during the First World War, making it perhaps the deadliest war in English history. This was no war of the roses. This was no battle of the nobility where the average citizen could continue as normal. This was a fundamental question of how the country should be ruled, how God should be worshiped. For his obdurate and reckless governance, Charles faced an equally obdurate and formidable parliament and he lost. He became the first saint of the Church of England. His reign may have contributed hugely to the destruction of the monarchy, but his conduct during the trial and the dignity he displayed afterwards also helped maintain the prestige of monarchy and contributed to its ultimate restoration. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for The Commonwealth. If you would like more information, you can follow me on Twitter at kingsqueenspod. You can send an email in to thekingsandqueenspodcast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram at kingsqueenspodcast. And that's it from me. See you next time. <laughs>